Design As is a podcast from Design Observer that speculates on the future of design. Each conversation is focused on a key theme, a word certainly, but not just a word, that both resonates with design practice, but also might be ripe for a bit of loving attention or even some reconsideration. For each conversation, we've assembled a specific group of design leaders, scholars, and industry experts for a roundtable discussion about the topic and its complex relationship to design. We edited each long-form conversation into two segments, so there's a healthy amount of anticipation between the two, but we're not hoping for some sort of cliffhanger between them. Design As is structured as a simile, after all, and we're hoping to land the conversation somewhere between a conversation and a collision. If we're doing it right, Design As will leave us with more questions than answers. That's what we're hoping for. The origin of these conversations and this show goes back to a three-day series of convenings in March of this year, 2023 when our team assembled small groups of design leaders for some intimate, closed-door, off-the-record conversations on the state of design leadership. We realized in those conversations that perhaps much of the world had leapt straight from our pandemic bubbles right back into the TED Talks and other main stages of ideas. We really just jumped from whispers right back to shouts, without ever bothering to process or take stock of what we learned along the way. This is a forum for taking stock. Design as is this forum. I'm Lee Moreau, and I'm glad you're here. Let's begin. Welcome to Design As, a show that's intended to speculate on the future of design from a range of different perspectives. This season, we're going to focus on three key words as prompts, culture, complexity, and citizenship, where we're going to interrogate and problematize design's new role in our world. And if you think about it, design's been asking for a seat at the table for a really long time. And I think we could say we've actually achieved our goals. We have a seat at the table, perhaps. The question is, what are we gonna do now? Or now what? So that's one of the provocations for today's show. Design As is brought to you by MasterCard, a global technology company in the payments industry. Their mission is to connect and power an inclusive digital economy that benefits everyone everywhere by making transactions simple, safe, smart, and accessible. To learn more about opportunities within their thriving design community, go to careers.mastercard.com and search for design jobs. This is part one of a two-part series investigating and talking about the word culture. Thank you all for being here. I'm Lee Moreau, founding director of Other Tomorrows, a design studio based in Boston, and the professor of practice and design at Northeastern University. Our dedicated Design Observer listeners might already recognize my voice as the host of the Futures Archive, a podcast from Design Observer that looks at the history of human-centered design with a critical eye toward its future. With me in this conversation is Dr. Leslie Ann Noel. Hi, Leslie. Hi. Hi, Lee. It's it's so great to be here. (laughs) Leslie Ann is an assistant professor in the Department of Design Studies at NC State University. She is the co-chair of the Pluriversal Design Special Interest Group of the Design Research Society, the maker of the designer's critical alphabet, and her book, Design Social Change, is slated for publication in late November as part of the 10 D-School Guide series. Next to her virtually is Alicia Cheng. Hi, Alicia. How are you? Hi, Lee. Good. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for being here. Alicia is head of design at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Met. She's also a founding partner of Management Design a collaborative women-owned graphic design studio whose projects focus on exhibition design, as well as museum publications, print, branding, and data visualization. Prior to management, Alicia worked as a senior designer for Method in New York and was a co-design director at the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum. 
and a round table or this big Zoom room that we're all inhabiting right now is completed and rounded out by Frederick Van Amstel calling in from Brazil. Frederick, how are you? Hello, Liam. Green, great. Frederick is Assistant Professor of Service Design and Experience Design at the Industrial Design Academic Department at the Federal University of Technology in Parana, Brazil. In 2020, he co-founded the Design and Oppression Network, and in 2021, its local hub at UTFPR, the Laboratory of Design Against Oppression, or LADO. His latest work investigates designerly and artistic approaches to overcome oppression and other kinds of systemic contradictions. We should talk about the rules of engagement for this conversation. So I would like this room that we're all sort of virtually inhabiting to be a safe space um, that we all feel comfortable talking. We're, we are, by nature, going to cover some issues that are challenging emotionally and intellectually. And I think that's actually why we've assembled this particular group of people to kind of confront those. Any comments or questions before we get started about the kind of space that we're inhabiting? I appreciate the sort of openness by which the invitation was put forth, but then I recall the results of putting a lot of good, smart people in a room together is always just born fruit that none of us would predict, but all of us appreciate. Let's jump to it. All right, let's just jump in. The notion of the show Design As is a place to potentially have some kind of confrontations between concepts. So design and another word. In this case, we're going to use the word culture as the kind of driving word that we think about. And culture is a challenging word. To be honest, I'm a little bit frightened about this conversation and taking on a word as big as culture. And so I'm going to put that out there right away because I think it's so so slippery, right? There's a kind of openness to the word culture. It can mean so many things. It's a very potentially could be conceived as an inclusive term, right? Culture, oh, that means many things. But it doesn't necessarily mean any one thing. And one of my concerns when we talk about design is that the word culture can kind of slip into a notion of like vibe, right? Oh, it's just a feeling. But culture is so much more than that. So I'm wondering right off the top, if we can have a conversation about how we should be defining culture in this conversation as we try to look at it within the lens of design. So that I can sound intelligent, (laughs) I'm going to start. When I was thinking about this, I was kind of wondering, okay, are we talking about Culture with a little C or a big C. And, you know, even what is this little C or big C, you know? Right. So I think of culture as something that's kind of all around us. You know, we all are cultured. I think of it as like our norms and practices, behaviors collectively. And I mean, that's, I guess, something in my head. Someone might have a better academic definition. But I think that also colloquially, people think about culture related to class and education. And, you know, sometimes people have an anthropological view of culture, you know, like other people's culture, like what are their practices that we can study? So all of this comes into my mind as we come into this conversation. Talking about this topic is almost a never-ending discussion, right? Well, um, I would say that culture can have many meanings, but the first one, the common sense, is like something related to customs, habits, food, and paintings, styles. But this is more like a superficial understanding of what is visible in culture. There's always some more invisible mm-hmm. structures going on that are not so easy to, discern, to distinguish. 
and to identify. And if we are going deep into understanding culture, we might also see conflicts and contradictions, especially between uh, a kind of uh, different habits and customs that are considered to be low culture and those that are considered to be high culture. And if you go, for example, to a museum, it's considered to be high culture. But if you go to certain kind of music style parties, they are considered low culture. And this is a, a contradiction that also spreads through different regions of the world. Some countries are considered to have a mission to conserve the high culture, while others are uh, considered to have a mission of destroying culture. For example, if I compare roughly, the U.S. is destroying the European culture that Europeans are trying to conserve, and uh, Brazilians also on the side of the destructive. But this destruction sometimes create new culture, new forms of culture. So culture can also be understood as something dynamic. And that's a way of overcoming perhaps this contradiction. So if you look at the movement, a culture is something that we are cultivating and changing as much as we are doing with the way we eat. So our food cultures are changing across centuries. And then that's, the, that's why it's so important to have uh, a history of the cultures. You cannot understand culture without understanding past history, but also future history. That's perhaps where design comes on. Frederick, I just want to just touch on something you said, because as we become more sophisticated in talking about design, we started to talk about design not as a, not as a noun, but as a verb, right? Increasingly, right? Design is about action. Design is about... It's a constantly shifting landscape, right? And if we define culture that way, which we typically don't, but, you know, we kind of define culture as a noun, but if we flip that to a verb and we think about the fact that it is moving, it is not stable, it is dynamic, that kind of opens up many other topics. So I love that kind of openness and freedom, maybe to that word, which will allow us to access it a little bit more easily. Maybe Alicia would like to (laughs) jump in. I agree with that opportunity to open up that definition for sure. And yet I can also say that there's also a way to make it incredibly narrow and precise. I think from where I sit quite literally at the Met right now, representing, you know, an institution that as a representative of museums broadly who were established to, you know, inculcate the public to culture and aesthetics and literally like teach the masses how to see. I think a lot of what the definition of culture as we are all trying to sort of put our arms around it in a broad way has to do with representation. And to me, I think how that is tied to design representation um, can be a kind of linchpin for our conversation today. The high and low definitions, I know where Fred is coming from, but I don't really like that either in terms of like, you know, am I in the high design part and you're in the low design part? Like I don't, I'm uncomfortable with that as a reference. But I think the aspect of what one shows in institutions that are meant to be the sort of bastions of what culture and arts are for certain civilizations, I think, is obviously under close scrutiny now, but also how it relates to communities and, again, representation. So, again, I don't think we gave you any answers to that, Lee, but maybe just further provocations. I'm quite confident we're going to have more questions than answers coming out of this conversation, which I'm very comfortable with. So, Alicia, I am curious, while you're maybe hesitant to talk about the high culture, low culture divide or division, 
Is it something that's kind of within the realm of the things that are in discussion, either at your institution or like institutions? I'm just curious, like this kind of tension. Definitely no. I just think personally, I see that tension more. I mean, clearly here, the mandate is to, you know, represent and package aspects of different representation and culture and mediums to a public that may not be as aware of them. So it's like a, you know, encyclopedic, I know is not the best word right now, but sort of, you know, in an effort to be inclusive, if we go back to those words too. So, but again, I feel like culture can be that massively broad definition, if that's not a contradiction in terms, but can also be incredibly exclusive. So I think the conversation now is about how to tone that down to sort of be more accessible and yet still be true to the mandate of, you know, the mission of trying to bring more art to more people. And, and that's a kind of a contradiction that we experience everyday life in here in Brazil, because I would say that a lot of people in colonial uh, or former colonial settings, they are believing that if they have inheritance uh, from the colonizers, they still have a culture of the colonizers to keep it, to maintain. Even though Brazil is now 200 years uh, of independent, uh, formally but as, as a political uh, entity, but culturally, and, uh, we are still pretty much tied to uh, Europe and, and now in more recent years to the US culture. So it is kind of cultures when they are presented to Brazilians, uh, they are presented as high culture. But then I think one interesting thing to hear about, I uh, would like to hear from you, is what about design? Is, is design high culture, low culture? Because in the past, it was considered to be, right, at the beginning of the, the design with this name, right, with this term, it opposed itself to art as a kind of applied art for the masses, low culture. But then now design is entering museums in <laughs> and it's becoming, again, uh, something that you could be considered high or even this distinction doesn't hold, for example, in the US. But in Brazil, design is definitely high culture. And at least what we consider canonic design and everything else that people do in the streets, for example, all the material culture produced by everyday people that are not trained in design is considered to be low culture, low design, but mostly no design. Oh, hmm. That's just no design. And that's, that's why we need to import design from foreign countries, from the US, from Europe and from other places because we don't have design here. So this is definitely something that we experience in everyday life because our students even think, our design students, they think, well, I would never be a real designer because I don't live in a design country, a design city, a design apartment. I, I don't even sit in a well-designed chair. And just so I understand you, you're suggesting that the definition of design colloquially is exclusive of normal normal life normal culture and so like it's an abstraction that's you begin to believe you don't see evidence of it in everyday life and that kind of that divide is growing is that how i understand well in brazil we even use the word design um coming from uh, anglophone uh influences we don't use um, a brazilian word for that we want to use a brazilian word we use projeto projeto which is considered to be not fashionable. It's not cool enough. If you say design, wow, it's something well done, right? And if there's something else that's done by Brazilians with their ways of doing, it's just projeto, or even something that is considered to be worse than design, which is called gambiarra. We have this 
this specific Brazilian word for defining a bad design that is improvised based on the materials that are around, that are not imported, it's pretty much things that are upcycled. They call it gambiarra, but it's considered to be lower design in relation to design or not not real design. And all the, the work we have been doing in, the, in our laboratory is to tell students, look, this is the kind of design we can do here in Brazil. And if we design from that and we develop further gambiarra, we might end up in something that's much more relevant to our culture, to our Brazilian culture, than if we start designing from designing the way uh, designers do abroad. I wanted to jump in on like maybe two points. You know, like, again, entering this conversation, for me, the idea that institutions could impact culture so much was kind of, I mean, of course, institutions do play a role in shaping culture. But I I think of culture as really something that happens on the street. And uh, what Alicia mentioned about teaching masses to see culture or, or to see something, I thought, oh, that's a very grand kind of mission. And I wondered, you know, if like, if it's the same kind of mission around culture that that institutions around the world have, you know, you know I, I think in in the context that I'm coming from in the Caribbean, you know, once people talk about, oh, the culture, they're really talking about street culture, right? And they're talking about music that was created on, on the streets, music that was created in the ghettos. I guess when we talk about culture, it's very often popular culture that people are identifying with us as part of their identity and heritage. And, and yes, maybe in that kind of context, the institution, which might be the Ministry of Culture, might offer some additional support, but this culture is going to happen with or without um, this institutional support because it is just what people are creating. And I think as a bridge to that, mm-hmm you know, how you represent that. And suddenly what happens when it crosses from something on the street, something that's sort of like a tangible and yet intangible part of a culture and a people, when it enters into the marble halls of a museum, how that changes. I find that kind of intersection very fascinating. And I also want to make it clear that personally, I'm not endorsing that the museums are those places where you can only go to get taught I find myself fascinated and working here for two some years, sort of looking at the history of museums in and of themselves, why they were established, how they were established, you know, the money involved and that sort of ethos of perpetuating the sort of, you know, a certain select group of elites who teach the ignorant masses of what is proper. So to me, unpacking that space is meaningful to and mindful of uh, where the Met operates now. So that's one thought. The other I wanted to also say is that there's also, we're talking about culture as, you know, aspects of really identity. And that is of a people, but it is also of an institution. So the Met's internal culture and all those contradictions that are embedded within that is something that also falls within this broad definition too. And institutions. Institutions can do great on trying to overcome these kind of contradictions. For example, the division between high and low culture. For example, if a museum hosts an exhibition with what's considered to be low culture within a high culture space, it's already changing those divisions and, and, and fading them out and hybridizing them and also uh, letting people know that the, the, what the definitions of what's culture is also updating. 
culture is not just about uh, the things that we cultivate. It's also about the way we think about the things we cultivate. So there's mm -hmm. always a, a meta a level for thinking about culture and thinking about what culture is. So it, it's not a problem that we are already 10 minutes discussing what culture is, because that's the point. Culture is all about things that are changing and moving collectively. That's the great thing. No one can give a single one definition because no one owns culture. There's no one single cult, uh, institution that is uh, responsible to say this is culture, even though there are ministers of culture in some countries. In Brazil, for example, we had, didn't have a minister of culture for the, in the last uh, presidential term. Now we do have it back again. Mm -hmm. But we still have culture in the streets, as Leslie Ann mentioned. And that can't be uh, destroyed and cannot be ignored. And, and even if you say it's low culture, at some point, low culture will turn into mainstream because now with this uh, massive media, the one thing that is, happens on the streets can become really popular all over the, the country and on many streets can reproduce that same kind of uh, music rhythm and beats and that comes from the favelas, for example. In Brazil, we have the favelas are really the culture hotspot of Brazil. That's where all the cultural innovation comes from and then later on becomes integrate into high culture and sometimes it loses the regions and people don't like paying credit to the uh, favela innovatives innovative people there but that's the that's the challenge for the institutions to recognize these kind of uh, uh, sources of culture innovation hi i'm cindy chastain senior vice president of customer experience and design at mastercard and i'd like to introduce you to some design leaders from our growing community i'm jess greco and i'm a design director here at mastercard what's special about design at mastercard to me is that we're not really limited by our job titles okay i'm a product experience design director okay what does that mean it doesn't matter because it's all about the value I can drive and the unique contributions I can make. I'm one of those people that doesn't just have a design background. I have a fine arts and art history and psychology background. I have a physical computing background. So if you need something soldered, I'm your person. I've worked as a researcher and a service designer, not just a product designer. What that basically means is I kind of work across the customer journey. I can wear a research hat. I can wear a more strategic product-oriented hat. I can give you feedback on how it looks and feels and works. The folks that I have seen do especially well at MasterCard are the ones that are really interested in growing their skill sets, broadening their skill sets, and wearing multiple hats. Not as a function of just needing to or having to, but wanting to. People that are focused on the business outcomes they want to drive, that is such a huge opportunity here. Folks that are more interested in what it means to build successful products, we need people like that. Design is not just, tell me what you want me to make and I will draw it for you. It should not be that. Design at MasterCard and designers at MasterCard are most successful when they don't think about what their job is supposed to be and they think about what needs to be done. What do we need to understand and care about? And then they make people care about it. From new digital payment products to innovations that empower people and create a more inclusive economy, 
our growing design community is working to accelerate the future of commerce through experience and innovation. Find out more at careers.mastercard.com and search for design jobs. What I'm hearing from this is this notion that culture has a series of vectors that are associated with it, right? So like culture might be in, in transition, but things are emerging from everyday life, the sort of quotidian existence, and become sort of refined and identified, and we can put a, a name to those things. In another way, you've you've got things that are clearly defined, we, we associate with a certain kind of representational position, and then those get kind of broken down or neutralized. So what is the relationship of us working together in communities? Frederick, you mentioned, I think you said the word communities or togetherness. As we kind of aggregate as humans and and have these kind of conversations, how does this change our definitions or these vectors? That's the multiculturalism uh, challenge, right? Which uh, <laughs> Leslie on is really an expert on. So please, Leslie, <laughs> tell us about the idea of pluriverse because that really helps to understand uh, multicultural relationships. Yeah, so the idea of the pluriverse is a world where many worlds fit or live or occupy. And, you know, like if we're talking about peoples <laughs> and culture, you know, if we can keep that in mind that, yes, there are many wills and there are many ways of doing and being annoying. And maybe as we talk about culture, we could be thinking about these cultural representations from these different worlds and kind of recognizing the importance of, of the variety and diversity of the representation. I, I'm wondering if you're asking about us as designers specifically working with communities or take it where I want to go. Is that <laughs> what you say? Honestly, I don't even know if I had a question. <laughs> and that's part of like, you know, I think... Um, you know, this is like maybe breaking the fourth wall, but I'm sensing, I'm sensing conversations and I'm just trying to like see where they take us. Yeah. But I do think there is a question about as designers, like we have both our own kind of responsibility to, to the action of design, right? We're the sort of shepherds of design, but we also have our own position within that. Yeah. So, and I know you're, you've been talking a lot about this, but I think as we come together, it becomes even more challenging, right? Yeah, definitely. I've been thinking, again, we just kind of prep coming into this conversation. It was like, what is our rule, right? So, like, I really think of, you know, this culture maybe with a small C, right? And, you know, similar to what, what Fred was describing, very often in the context that I am in, this culture in quotes, so or the innovation, cultural innovations are being created in the ghettos and in, I mean, I say ghettos, but, you know, in lower class neighborhoods. And then I think, OK, so what is our role as designers? Maybe we can support these cultural works and movements and innovation, you know, through documentation, through co you know, facilitating conversations through, you know, certainly the work that, that a lot of us do in social media and broadcasting. And, you know, maybe that's some of the kinds of interactions that we will have with culture. I understand the importance of big institutions, but I'm more focused on the what happens in in the smaller spaces and then how can we have many more conversations happening you know either 
in these smaller spaces or across these smaller spaces, you know, about, again, culture and cultural innovation? Well, I guess as a bridge from what Lizanne was saying, I think as we sort of tackle this, like, what is culture? What is design? How is design and design and culture and how they may or how they nest or or relate to me, I feel like this, the nature of sort of scale, as Lausanne may be referring to in terms of smaller communities and institutions, then I start gravitating towards, and I, again, I don't mean to sort of put parameters on what design is, but as designers, I would say that it is a lot to do with listening, no matter what the scale, such that, you know, I was involved in an AOJ New York project um, after Hurricane Sandy to focus on the Red Hook neighborhood in Brooklyn. And we formed teams and there was no project mandate. It was just more to sort of see what the needs are. That was it. So you just sit and listen to a community and what their needs are. And the design intervention was not, you know, posters and profiles of the community per se. It was really getting them better Wi-Fi and a communication system that could work for them. It was very you know, nuts and bolts, the identity took me like 20 minutes to do like it was that wasn't the part of design in that higher sense that maybe Frederick was referring to. So I think it does what we can all anchor towards is that definition of how design can always work. And I think I recall from the conversations earlier with that bigger group, Lee, that I remember noting that all of us, no matter where we were coming from, bigger corporate, in-house teams, out-of-house educators, etc., that we were all just fundamentally curious people that were looking to solve some problems. Hmm. So design can be vaulted and, you know, can be the most amazing critical thing. But fundamentally, I think that is our, you know, superpower is that we're good listeners and we're good problem solvers. And that solution can come in something very benign or something as vaulted as like an exhibition at the vet. Like that's the scale part that I think is what we can really deploy. And if you look at design history, we will see a history of many designers designing things that are representing culture and synthesizing culture in a material way that can uh, be used in the everyday life for functions, but also can stay in the museum to make a kind of a statement about those historical times, a kind of a grasping the spirit of the times. And that's something that attracts and draws many design students. They want to become those designers, those famous design stars, but they believe that they don't know anything about this, that they have never done it, they have never produced culture. So they think, see culture, at least at the beginning of their studies, as something to acquire. They want to accumulate culture as if it was something like you could put in your baggage and you can take with you. But then the first thing is that we try to deconstruct and unlearn in the laboratory of design against oppression is that they already are producing culture, even though they are not recognized as famous designers, but they are also everyday designers. They are always designing their lives. They are designing themselves. They are designing their bodies. They are choosing how they want to present themselves in society. And that's already designed and then if we go further and further into that they realize that they are already producing culture they are culture producers as citizens if you are breathing as a human being part of a society you're already producing culture and that's liberating mm -hmm. because then it's not something that is ahead of you and uh, sometimes too far away for you to get there in a lifetime that then it's something else that you already have then you feel empowered to pursue further your own path and not just someone else's path. And then 
great projects come out of that, of this understanding of your ancestors' mm-hmm. history, understanding of the, the history of the place where you lived or where you've grown up, the history of the things that you use in everyday life and then they, they they really get good designs because these designs are relevant to their culture and so culture is not something static to be packed up it's something to be conscious part of that's why we always referring back to the work of Brazilian educator Paulo Freire who was a, a great educator who emphasized that illiterate people will get littered one day un- once they impart to understand they are already littered mm-hmm <laughs> if they start uh, from reading of the world to reading the words, then there is a connection. And it's not something that someone else is trying to impose, a divide between high culture, low culture, being literate and being illiterate. No, it, it's a continuum. And you can always develop further. Even if you're already literate, there's so much more that you can read, but also write. You can also be a culture producer on your own. And that's why Paulo Freire always said that we are part of culture and we are culture. Actually, that's the definition. Man is culture. Uh, Leslie, and you introduced me to Paulo Freire first. I did not know who this person was. I'm a little embarrassed to say that until you spoke in my class a few years ago. And I know you're you're embodying some of this in your own classroom. You wrote a book about it. So can you kind of give us some examples of ways that you're kind of living this in the classroom? Yeah, um, goodness, it's, it's hard to talk after Frederick, right? Um, I know. But <laughs> but, it, but it is really about, you know, as he said, building this critical awareness of the world and understanding that you play a role in this world and you're not just a passive piece on the board game having the world happen to you. You make the world, right? And so, okay, so like examples of how we do this. You know, like I'm teaching a class right now called Contemporary Issues in Art and Design. And it's, it's really just contemporary issues. It's, it's a social studies class for design students that I just love. You know, we, we get to talk about the world and we really start off having them understand their own identities. And actually, a lot of my book is based on this class that I love so much, you know, where you have to start understanding who you are, right? And again, coming to that place of of understanding that the world doesn't just happen to you. You you make things, you live life, you live culture, you influence the world. You know, the next phase, I try to encourage students to think about what are the issues that they are passionate about. We go through a series of issues that I guess I, as the the educator, kind of curate and say, well, okay, these are the the big issues that maybe we are, that we need to to understand in the world. But I also want to hear from them. They teach me as well, what are the issues that are driving them as young people? And sometimes I actually change my curriculum from one semester to the next based on, on the issues that they're interested in. You know, so like young people have an interest in mental health that... I didn't grow up with, you know, and every semester my curriculum changes a little bit more to reflect that. Where we bring the design part is, is that they react to these issues through design. So actually the assignment they have to do next week, they're making games about gender, right? And um, about questions of gender, sexuality, feminism, toxic masculinity. They have a range of topics that they can choose, but they have to teach other people 
about these issues from their point of view. You know, so I mean, these are the kinds of examples that, um, you know, the, the, the kinds of activities that we're going through in this design class where, yes, we're reading about the issues. They are looking around the world and seeing how other people are talking about the issues. We're having like really deep conversations in class about them. And then as designers, we're reacting to these issues through what we do as designers, you know, through artifacts, through maybe even designing conversations. But we're reacting so that, again, the world isn't just happening to us. And all of this, I mean, this method that I use, you know, similar to the, the, what, what Frederick is describing, all of this is like Freirean pedagogy that I'm trying to bring into the classroom. You know, I don't have to teach the students about contemporary issues in a really remote kind of way. There used to be a textbook that we use. And I'm like, but actually the world is happening around us. Maybe we don't need that textbook, right? And and I think that I want to go back to a few things that or that I thought about while um, Frederick was speaking earlier is that when you are not in the dominant center, right? Or, you know, when you, when you don't study in, uh, I don't know, New York or London or, you know, wherever these places are, you can feel that everything is very remote, right? I was a PhD student before I realized that, oh, these authors that I read are actually real people. <laughs> and, you know, it sounds kind of ridiculous to, to say, but, you know, the, these well-cited authors all seem like imaginary people who live on shelves in, in a library, right? Or you can think that design really could never be created by a person born in Port of Spain or in Kingston, Jamaica or in Lagos or in, you know, you, you can feel that that you don't, that you can't participate in that kind of world. And so it's really important for uh, the educator who's operating in these kinds of spaces to figure out, okay, how are you going to make sure that whether it's design or culture or art, you know, how are you going to make sure that people understand, oh, we create art, right? Or we create design, we create work that is of, of good quality. And um, we can't just be telling students that, okay, your work is really never going to be good enough to be in whatever, whatever place, because that, that will kind of just frustrate them into never producing anything. I think it's really hard to make classrooms, and I, I can't speak to all the context that you're talking about, but you know, the classroom's not always a safe space, and I think you have to have a supremely safe space in order to elevate the conversation to a point where everyone can feel comfortable, both talking about them, their own person, the people around them, but also the climate they're speaking from relative to other parts of the world. I mean, that just requires so much extreme level of comfort, I think. Hard to achieve. Well, I will say this on this podcast, so I'm saying this publicly, it's a big risk for an educator. Yeah. Right? And and frankly, every semester I'm a little bit scared. <laughs> I mean, I do it and I'm like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm a big woman. I'll, say, I'll suffer the consequences. But it is scary for me and it is rewarding to hear by the end of the semester the, the transformation that happens in some students. So some students will be public about the transformation that happens, you know. So like I had one student who came to me at the end of the semester and said, you know what, I just actually decided to change my pronouns and went to my parents and said, this is what I'm doing. And thank you. I was like, OK, that's a big one. <laughs> right. Or, or like I've, I had a, an, another student who ended a presentation at the, and he says, you know what, I'm a white male and I don't suffer any oppressions, but 
this is what I can do. And I was like, that's another big one. And, you know, there's also the negative one where, you know, I'll get a class eval where the person says, oh, this teacher does this talk about race and stuff like that. And, and even that, I think, is something significant because this is a person who kind of very often has to go through the world not even seeing all of these issues of race and gender and immigration and oppress oppressions in general, right? And uh, they never have to confront it like that, right? The students didn't know before that we were looking at oppressions. We were just talking about contemporary issues. But now I'm much more explicit in saying that, yes, we're looking at contemporary issues, but the, the theme through all of it is oppression, right? And what are these oppressions that maybe we can influence or address as designers? So, Leslie, I want to jump back to something you said. You said you, you were describing how it's really scary in the classroom. And what I want to do is probe literally on those words. Why is it scary? And I think we can all talk about this. So, yeah, you're putting yourself out there. Uh, they're taking a risk. But why is it actually scary? I think certainly coming in to a place like the Met from, you know, having my own quiet, small practice in Brooklyn, you know, it's a much bigger stage. And that can be both, you know, empowering and uh fundamentally exciting, but also with it becomes comes great responsibility and mindfulness. So how I mediate how we interpret the work that we do here, it's within a very complex system of this institution. So I just think being more acutely aware, and with that is just basically self-consciousness, both, you know, I'm not going to speak for the institution, but as you sort of go back to, you know, my team and each person being an ambassador for Met Design and myself now suddenly being more of an institutional face of it. It's something that is, is still new to me. And so just being aware of that, and I wouldn't call it power per se, but I would just appreciate that I'm aware of the, the bigger platform that the Met can afford. But also within my own teaching, it's more of an external critic at, at RISD, but sort of seeing aspects of these issues coming forth and sort of being able to sort of facilitate, you know, probe within an effort to sort of help shape the body of work as it best communicates what each student wants to by the end of their study. I think it, it all informs, I think, currently where elements of my position as a critic and my position here does kind of form each other. Actually, it's dangerous, to be honest, sometimes. It's more than scary. I mean, it's dangerous, literally, because, for example, teaching this topic during Bolsonaro's times in Brazil, the last four years, well, I couldn't lose my job in the public university because Bolsonaro couldn't, although he tried to end up tenure protections mechanism. But a lot of students uh, got inspired by Bolsonaro's to put uh, professors under scrutiny, public scrutiny, if, if they did something that they considered to be wrong or even against good culture, against high culture standards. And um, I was subjected to moral harassment. Students, so, uh, they organized this kind of a coup in one of my courses. And uh, it was a really terrible situation. I, I even was handled 
to other courses. So I, for one year, I could not teach design in my own university because I was raising the issue of oppression. And I actually wasn't the one raising the issue of oppression. <laughs> this far-right movement was raising. I was just uh, bringing the, what was going on, this conflict, this contradiction that was a big deal in Brazilian political sphere to the classroom. So if you represent, coming back to what Alicia was saying, if you represent the contradiction of society into a classroom or in a museum, and these contradictions are so tense, it becomes dangerous. People can come and destroy the classroom or destroy the museum. We have countless uh, stories of that. Or, or they want to burn books like they are doing in, in Mexico right now, burning books that bring forth concept of culture from Paulo Freire because they think it's low culture. So this is all part of our uh, reality right now. And if we want to change that reality and, and go towards a uh, an utopia of a pluriversal uh, world where many worlds can fit and, and different ways of living, different ways of producing culture can coexist. That takes a battle, that takes a struggle. <laughs> and we will have to, to win democratically and the path to get there will be full of conflicts. We hope to be have peaceful conflicts where we can just argue. <laughs> but sometimes this can get into institutional backlashes. This can get in, into organized situations where things get out of control. And design is all part of that. We are not working or operating on the high culture part of society where this conflict is never reached. Actually, we are in the middle of it. That, that's why I think design is interesting place to be right now, because that's where all these movements are going on and where all these contradictions are exploding and where we can also make a difference by mediating and uh, sometimes facilitating the resolution of a conflict, but sometimes provoking and complicating the conflict because it cannot remain as such. We cannot, for example, stay polarized in politics and where left-handed people and right-handed people never talk together. If we keep doing this, we will have eventually these outbursts that will be violent. But if we keep talking and if we keep creating opportunities for having conversations across worlds, then we may have a chance to keep a democratic society while we can keep having conflict, but in a more civilized way. Join us next week for the second part of our conversation on culture. The way design leadership will manifest in this world, there was something like that. We will be in the lab, in the, in the studio, putting our hands dirty <laughs> with stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And or even, I mean, this I know this is cliched, but like, we don't need a seat at your table. We'll make our own table because we make things, right? So. And we don't want to sit down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We make hammocks or... <laughs> yeah. Design As is a podcast from Design Observer. To keep up with the show, go to designobserver.com slash designas or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard today, please make sure to rate and review us and share this with your friends. You can follow Design Observer on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or whatever we call that, at Design Observer. Design As is brought to you this season by MasterCard. Tune in next week to hear more from Leslie and Noel, Alicia Chang, and Frederick Van Amstel. You can find more about them in our show notes at designobserver.com slash designas, along with a full transcription of our show. 
Our producer is Adina Karp. Judy Belkamanian edits the show. Special thanks to Grupo Onion in Brazil, Megan Gerald and Jason Gillikin in Raleigh at Earfluence, and Maxine Philibong at Northeastern University. Our music is by Joshua Brown. Thanks as always to Design Observer founder Jessica Helfand and to Design Observer executive producer Betsy Vardell. <laughs>